Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. My name is Stuart Alsop, and today we're interviewing Malcolm J. Collins. Uh, he is a VC. Uh, he's also involved in PE, a CEO, 5X bestselling author, Wall Street Journal, uh, and an educator. Uh, and he's also got a podcast called Based Camp on YouTube. Uh, go check it out. But welcome to the show, Malcolm. It is so wonderful to be here with you today. So... What has been on your mind for the past, like, what's the most interesting thing that's happened in the last few days in the sort of intellectual sphere that's got your mind churning? Oh. I'm, I'm... Well, okay, yeah. So, I mean, the the recently I was editing, and so I've been spending a lot of time on one of our episodes that's on a specific anti-natalist argument, but I don't know how interesting that's going to be to your audience. It's on the concept of negative utilitarianism mm. and how this is a somewhat reasonable philosophical concept, mm. but that has a lot of negative implications and that that creates a lot of negative externalities for society. Uh, one of the things that we're most publicly known for is running the pronatalist movement. So this is the movement that's focused on falling fertility rates in, in developed countries. Um, and in non-developed countries now. So, you know, if you look at like, a lot of people are like, oh, you can solve this with immigration. But like, as of 2019, by the UN's own statistic, collectively, Central America, South America, and the Caribbean, where we yep. get most of our immigrants, it yep. fell below replacement rate. So they do, you know, we're like a farmer who has unsustainable water management practices draining from a evaporating pond and being like, oh, I don't see the problem because it's not affecting me yet. I'm taking water from the pond across the street. And it's like, well, you're making things worse there in the short term. Um, so, uh, but one of our, our big enemies, um, are, are the anti-natalists, right? So there's a lot of like dumb reasons people are anti-natalists. Uh, and I don't want to go like too into them. Um, they're just really bad arguments. You know, like this is racist, it's obviously not racist. It's, it's in fact affects white people a lot less than like East Asian and Southeast Asian populations. Um, it, or they'll say it's bad for the environment. Um, that's, that's pretty silly fertility rates are falling no matter what we're just trying to draw attention to how we create you know uh some sort of solution to that but there's one really smart argument which is the negative utilitarian argument um and that's why i spent so long on it and so much time thinking about it recently although we had written about it in our in our book on the subject and what the the negative utilitarians have a few key points to their position um, but specifically, they believe one of two things. Either the human life is um, predominated by suffering to such an extent that any positive emotions we feel don't matter. Uh, basically, they, they would say that um, the negative emotions we feel are so acute when compared to the positive emotions. And they're right about this. Like if you cut off like my finger, there's no positive emotional equivalent I could have to that, right? Yeah. Um, and when we talk about the happiest moments of our lives, we're often talking about things that don't actually fill us with a positive emotion in the moment, but more are, are like life milestones. Like we'll say the day I gave birth to a kid or the day I get married. And these typically aren't like, flushed with positive emotional states they're more like this is life milestones that we're self-defining in this way or this way um and then the the 
The other thing that they they often argue is that even if our lives were predominated by positive emotions, positive emotions don't matter. Um, so they'll either say that positive emotions don't matter because they can be caused by trivial stimuli. Like, you know, if Sisyphus rolling the ball up the hill every day made him happy, would that task have intrinsic value? Um, or they'll say positive emotions don't matter because of the asymmetry hypothesis, um, which is to say that uh, if, um, okay, if you're bringing somebody into the world, like if you're having a kid, um, it's bad if that kid has a life predominated by suffering, but it's good if that kid has a life predominated by happiness. But if you don't bring a kid into the world, um, it is not bad if that kid doesn't feel any happiness, but it is bad if they feel suffering. So you can only cause negatives by bringing new people into the world. Um, and so they don't want people to exist at all. Um, and it's a very interesting movement because a lot of their arguments, like I could get into if you actually want to dig deep into why I think their arguments are, are logically flawed if you adopt perspectives that I think most people do, but um, they're at least better thought through than the other arguments against us. Yeah, okay, interesting. Negative utilitarianism, really interesting because we're talking about suffering. The, the kind of like slight thing in the back of my head, uh, which kind of goes into crazy wisdom in general, is like so not non-consensus views, one of which is the nature of reality and the nature of a soul. Uh, and so I'm not really uh, saying that we have a soul that lasts beyond death. Uh, but one of the arguments for kind of life as suffering, kind of uh, Buddhism, the type of thing, like where we reincarnate in order to kind of have these long span histories. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the posits that they have for suffering is essentially that it's like a teaching moment uh, that teaches you how to suffer less through more suffering. Um, and so like this idea of the antinatalist is like is very much centered around the materialist perspective that once we die, we go into nothingness, which also a lot of Buddhists and a lot of Advaita Vedantins also mention that everything we currently cognize is also going away. So it's like, don't get attached to that. Uh, but what, where do you think this fits into in terms of like, like how, what are your main arguments for this antinatalist um uh, anti or negative utilitarianism thing about their perceptions of suffering. So, so keep in mind, I am right now giving you the perception of the group that is our enemy. biggest yep. enemies in yep. the intellectual space. Yep. So you're asking me to model somebody who hates me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I would say that what they would probably um, say about the Buddhist position is that it's cope. Um, yeah. the, 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 uh, the idea, well, so some Buddhists, I do, I do believe just genuinely think suffering is, is negative. And I think Buddhism as a faith is the closest to a genuinely negative utilitarianist faith, um, of, of all of the faiths out there. Um, in that they, they do believe that suffering is an intrinsically negative thing, whereas most faiths don't really believe that. They believe that emotional sets oh, are yeah. something that can be manipulated by demons or angels or something like that, and that instead, uh, what is good is defined by, you know, a set of morals or rules or something like that. Like, human emotions just aren't that important. Um, but so if we're talking about the Buddhist perspective, they might argue, even if Buddhists are right, one way we could end the cycle of suffering is just which is actually uh, the goal of many of the negative utilitarianist groups. I could also get more into uh, why I think a lot of their arguments don't hold a lot of, of, of water. Yes. Yeah. And what I also think is most interesting about their arguments is they're structurally very similar 
to pro-life arguments, not <laughs> pro-natalist arguments, but but what I mean is anti-abortion arguments, uh-huh. um, which is really interesting. Is is to be a anti-natalist of the negative utilitarian variety and to believe things like the asymmetry argument, um, you have to really buy into this binary uh, belief in human existence. That there is a moment after which humans fully exist and before which humans don't exist at all. Um, Humans have no potentiality to their existence, right? Um, So... For example, from my perspective, right, every decision I make can is sort of me choosing between one of you know millions of different potential timelines, mm. and I am morally culpable for everything that happens within every one of those timelines, right? So uh, today, if I had the option to go out and build a hospital or sit and play video games all day. Um, the hospital's moral value doesn't pop into existence the moment the first brick is laid. I am still morally culpable for not building that hospital, even if I never started to build that hospital. Um, and it's the same with human life. So um, to so so when uh, the the antinatalists believe that life begins is a little confusing. Like I don't think they take a hard stance on this, but. Um, if you say that life is sort of a, a matter of incremental potentiality, all of their arguments begin to fall apart. So an example of this yeah. is what they'll often use for their asymmetry argument is the island argument. Yeah. So what they'll say is, okay, so you have an island um, that even you found this island in the ocean and nobody was on it, right? Um, and because nobody was on it, uh, you don't you don't feel like sad right you because no one on it is not feeling happiness but if you found an island in the ocean and it was full of people who are suffering you'd be like well the the net like world is worse off for that situation um and so that's what they used to say like a human who wasn't brought into existence uh has no negative value for not feeling happiness however i think the trick that they're using in this thought experiment is they have created a situation in which people exist assume there was no reason for people to be on that island. But suppose on this island with nobody on it, you found archeological evidence that there had recently been a tribe there. Now, this tribe was a very unique tribe. They felt absolutely no suffering or no unhappiness in any circumstance, okay? Um, So nothing this tribe experienced caused suffering. Nuclear bombs, what we found out is is there was nuclear bomb testing near this island, and it ended up sterilizing everyone on the island. So they all went extinct. But in this process of extinction, no negative emotions were had. So within the framework of the antinatalist, literally nothing bad has happened here. Yet I would think to most sane thinking non-sociopaths, something really bad happened there that there wasn't still this happy tribe on this island. Um, And... The other thing that you have to assume with with their argument, if you assume the the um, asymmetry hypothesis, is that a universe where literally no life exists, the completely dead void of the universe, mm-hmm. has the exact same moral value of a universe with like thriving, happy, multiplanetary, pluralistic species. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just seems preposterous to me. I, at that point, I really think you're you're you're. Uh, getting confusing, but here's where, where I get really like, like, I think it makes no sense, but here's where I think they'd start to, uh, the, the argument I find most interesting here is the Claymore argument, um, which I would say, okay, so if I set up a Claymore, right, 
And that claymore, uh, like it's in a tomb or something, and it doesn't go off for 500 years, but it kills the first archaeologist that opened the tomb. Now, this is a magical claymore. It does nothing but kill somebody totally painlessly, and these archaeologists have no next of kin, nobody knows they're dead, anything like that, right? Um, the question is, have I done something bad? Because their, their sperm didn't exist, their egg didn't exist yet. You know, when I laid that down, when I made that decision that robbed somebody else in the future of their agency, did I do something bad, right? And I think most antinatalists wouldn't bite the bullet on this. They'd say, yes, you did do something bad, right? So then there's two reasons you can say that, yes, you did do something bad. You can say, yes, you did something, well, three ways you could say, yes, you did something bad. You could say, one, people pass some sort of arbitrary threshold after which they have a right to their individual agency. Um, uh, you know, and so like maybe that's conception, maybe that's birth, after which all humans have a right to their, their full agency. Uh, that seems really arbitrary to me. Why, why after this one moment, why is it that once it's fertilized, does that human have a right to exist and not like a week before, even though like all the physical laws have been set in place to end up with that egg being fertilized. Why? So I, I don't actually think they would take that perspective. I actually think they're going to take another perspective. I actually think that they could say something along the lines of actually, um, it's it's the fact that a being has agency that gives them right to that agency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how much a being has right to agency is proportional to how much agency they have. Now, this can sound like a really sane position until you consider the implications. What it means is it's a lot uh, morally better, for example, to kill an infant or a mentally disabled person than it is to kill like a, 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 an otherwise healthy adult, yeah. right? And that seems morally wrong to me, but here's where I think it, it becomes completely absurd as a moral position. What it also means is it's exactly the there there is a very little moral cost to killing a sleeping person because they have very little agency in that moment but there's a very big moral cost to killing a waking person because they have a lot of agency in that moment and then what they'd say is oh no 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 you can't do that because the sleeping person is going to wake up in the near future and they'll have more agency then and it's like yeah but that baby's going to have more agency in the future that fertilized egg is going to have more agency in the future you can't play that game what you're really doing is saying the closer something is to you the more right they have to their agency that's what i'm really hearing from this argument yeah. um but I, I'm, I mean i'm trying to come up with how they would debate this because uh yeah do you get? Uh, do you find yourself stuck in a lot of debates with the anti-natalists? Not really. They they don't engage us that much. So this is what's really interesting. The people who engage us are the people who engage in the stupid arguments, like the racist arguments, right? Like they're like, this is a racist position, and then we point out to them, well, actually, if you look at prosperous environments, pretty much everyone's fertility rate collapses as soon as they encounter any terms of prosperity, except for. Christian conservatives and Jewish conservatives. Pretty much the only people who are safe are white people. If we do nothing, white people generally are going to come out on top. Well, so, white religious people who have- Oh, right, white yeah, religious yeah, yeah, people, but yeah, it still yeah, yeah. is a predominantly oh, got white it. Yeah, group. Because this is a, yeah, a racist argument, so you're, you're yeah. going against the, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so if you define racist as things that disproportionately benefit white groups, then actually arguing to not raise the, the alarm about uh, falling fertility rates uh, in, in as soon as a place becomes wealthy is the racist position.
But wait, but what's what's the counter? The counter example is Africa, because Africa is the one place where there is no. Right. But why is Africa that Africa only has a high fertility rate? And this is this is true anywhere in the world. Places generally today only have an above replacement fertility rate if the average citizen is earning less than 5,000 USD per year. Uh, um, and in Africa, when they start to earn more, their uh, fertility rates collapses. When you start to educate women, their fertility rate collapses. Now, presumably, we're not like lying to everyone when we say that we want to improve the standard of living in Africa. But right now, Europe, the United States, our economies only function because we are playing this shell game where we are saying we have created this stable civilizational system, but apparently we can't motivate people to breed in that civilizational system. So then we we move people from environments that don't have prosperity yet into our environment, um, but then that sterilizes them. So recent immigrants actually have fairly low fertility rates. In the US, the average fertility rate of a first-generation immigrant is only 1.7, which is only slightly higher than the native population. So the only way that this is sustainable the, uh, the, uh, the Africa solution is to one, keep Africa poor. Mm -hmm. And then two, because as soon as they immigrate, they fall below fertility rate, um, continually import people from Africa to prop up our social security system, I work which in is supporting non-working yeah. white people. Yeah. So the not racist plan is to import people from Africa to support non-working white people. That doesn't sound like a not racist plan for me. What it sounds like is people are defining their in-group's political proclivities as not racist without actually thinking about the implications or the long-term geopolitical implications of us not figuring out how to make broadly like gender equality, prosperity and access to education compatible with high fertility rates. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, this is, this is, this is wildly interesting. Uh, so there's this question uh, and I heard from Peter Zahan that the, and uh, that there are said there is a replacement generation in two countries and those two countries are the United States and Mexico. Is that accurate? Israel. No, no, uh, United States and Mexico. No, no, no. Israel has a great oh, fertility rate. So, so Israel also has a fertility rate. Uh, no, Israel has a, like a really good. So the U.S. And, and Mexico are doing pretty well. So the countries that are most resistant to fertility collapse. So whenever progressives hear about this, mm -hmm. as soon as they accept it, the first thing they want to do is say, um, OK, they, they want to use it to promote their own political agenda. So they'll say, OK, well, we should give people cash handouts. Right. It, it turns out that the less money you have, the more kids you have. This is true within countries and between countries. Yep. So that doesn't work. And we also know countries that have tried this. Hungary tried 5% of their GDP went to cash handouts last year, and it only got their fertility rate up by 1.6%. It's completely unsustainable. Um, and when you consider that in a lot of the world, fertility rates falling like 3% year over year. Like in China, it's falling like 10% year over year, um, depending on what year you're talking about. I could, I could go into the different China statistics, but it's bad in China right now. Yeah. But the first thing conservatives want to do, and this is why this statistic is important right here, is they say, well, then what we should do is we should close our borders and sort of protect whatever cultural group we have in this country right now. But the problem is, is that if you look at prosperous countries around the world, the countries with the lowest fertility rates are the least diverse countries, both ethnically and culturally. You're looking at countries like Korea, right? Yeah. Um, if you look at the, the countries that have prosperity, 
but also are weirdly resistant to fertility collapse, like the United States, Mexico, and Israel, yeah. they are the often the most diverse countries. Yeah. Um, now, there's a lot of reasons why this could be, but uh, probably the most obvious is that when you're in constant cultural competition within other groups, you're going to be sharper than a group that is not. Mm. But also there could be the war hypothesis, which is that after any war, people's fertility rates typically shoot up. Like this is after World War II or something like that. Mm. So if you see your cultural group and sort of in active competition with other groups, um, you're going to have higher fertility rates. So it's not exactly a not racist reason why you want other people in your country, but you're generally better with immigration, which goes against the conservative sensibility. Um, but hmm. here's where it gets really interesting is, is what's the other thing that correlates with low fertility rate, right? So if you look around the world, generally, the more wealth the country has, the lower its fertility rate is. But you'll notice like some systemic differences, U.S., Mexico, Israel, unusually high, block countries, China, unusually low. Like what's going on there, right? Um, what it turns out is probably going on there is it's a hope scenario. The more hope people have for the future, the more they feel like they're not just having kids to serve like some economic elite, the more kids they're going to have. And where you can really see this is the only country to recently persistently reverse fertility collapse in any meaningful sense was Georgia. And it happened in, I want to say 2003, after something called the Rose Revolution or the Revolution yeah. of Roses, which uh, is when they kicked out the last of their communist governance. Um, and they had a persistent long-term reversal in fertility rates after that. So, um, uh, and, and you can actually hear this uh, um, logic of this sort of uh, articulated in China was the We Are the Last Generation movement, which is a very interesting movement um, so this movement is in China. They're with these government officials who went to this young couple's apartment and they're like, if you don't do X, Y, and Z right now, this will affect your family for the next three generations. And they go, oh, that's okay. We're the last generation. And they slam the door on them. Um, and it went viral because uh -huh. a lot of people really agreed with that. You know, China right now is doing everything it can to try to get fertility rates up, but people aren't going along with it because they feel that the economic elite oh. in the country are just doing it to try to the profit off of them basically right and that there's no real economic mobility if you contrast that with the highest fertility rate prosperous country israel like what's motivating them to have kids they're like well we're we're jewish oh, no, we we're... like the jewish identity i want more jewish people to exist in the future i don't think it even crosses their mind that like people in israel want them to have more kids for some sort of economic benefit it's it's more like they have genuine pride in their cultural Wait, group so so i've got a question about that because when i was in israel and in, in palestine in 2006 the main argument i kept on hearing was that the the the, the israeli jewish people are, are done for because all of the arabs around them are having kids at a crazy rate but what you're saying oh is no the Haredi are hugely out so, out out uh, no, really. i'm pretty sure yeah, interesting. So now I have to look at the statistics, but I'm pretty sure the Haredi out outbreed the the Arabs in Israel. Now, keep in mind the Haredi are very different from the secular Israelis. Yeah, 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 the yeah, secular yeah. Israelis yeah, are probably yeah, yeah. not going to be well. And this is Whoa. the other thing that people don't really look into the future with this stuff. Yeah. Um, the world's going to be a much more religious place in the future uh, because, um, uh, well, I mean, religiosity is heretical. 
Um, but unfortunately, uh, oh, I mean, this is just seen in studies. Like they've done yeah. polygenic score on this. They've done twin analysis on this where you, you know, have identical twins that are separated at the birth. Not your religion, but the extent to which yeah. you have religious fervor. Yeah. But it turns out, so we did a big study on this because we didn't have a problem with that. You know, religiosity is fine. Like if that's yeah. what motivates people to have kids, whatever. Uh, but it turns out that that's not what's really being selected for. It turns out that people with high religiosity actually deconvert from their religions at a pretty high rate which, you know, makes sense that you've ever been around like the new atheist movement. Like a lot of them were religious yeah, firebrands yeah, before yeah. deconverting. Um, uh, what seems to protect people in these cultural traditions that are able to motivate a high fertility rate is actually um, something called the uh, right-wing authoritarian personality cluster, which is found just much in the right and the left, but it was named by like a lefty professor. So, you know, it was negative. So they said, it basically hey, means that you are not interested in listening to people from different cultural groups, uh, which of course would be incredibly protective. Uh, and it also means you typically have a preference for really hierarchical governance structures. Yeah. Um, and and you sort of dehumanize people a little bit if they're from different cultural groups. It's like, nah, 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 whenever somebody who doesn't already agree with you is talking to you. Now, what's interesting is we hypothesize from our data that we should have already seen this being selected for because it turns out this is also pretty heritable um, in the US voting population. Right. And if you look at the US voting population after the period where fertility began to collapse, um, you begin to see the two political parties drifting further and further apart in their voting patterns which is exactly what you would protect, predict. So we might just see this trend continue and continue to become more extreme, which has uh, big negative implications for, you know, like the future of the world. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I didn't quite catch that last part. So essentially, uh, after the fertility collapse in the United States, you were expecting what? Oh, yeah. So what you see, and you can uh, pull up studies of this, um, Democrats and conservatives that used to like vote cross boundary a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like a Democratic congressman yeah. would often vote on conservative issues. A Republican congressman would often vote on Democratic issues. Um, and, and almost like mitosis, you can see them like pull apart as time goes on um, and become more and more uh, partisan, uh, basically, you could say. Like mm -hmm. they they are sort of, the Democrats are dehumanizing the Republicans, the Republicans are dehumanizing the Democrats. It is not just people's perception that this is happening more and more. It is actually literally visible in the data. Um, and this might be, from an evolutionary perspective, it could be a genetic change in sociological profiles, but it could also be a cultural change. So even if you say, okay, genetics, I do not believe that any portion of a human sociological profile is genetic. I mean, that's basically a religious belief when you look at the data because it's so obvious, but just say that you you assume this, right? Uh, and if you if you don't believe, look at the field of genopolitics, there's Wikipedia articles on this. Uh, it's like a well-studied field. It's like an entire field of academia. But if you want to say that entire field is just lies, um, you just want to look at the cultural groups. Well, even still, then the cultural groups that dehumanize other cultural groups are going to have more surviving offspring. And democratic parents are very likely to have democratic offspring and Republican parents are very likely to have Republican offspring. You could argue that this is what's being seen in the data, even though these kids are raised by different families. So that's not what's being seen in the data, but you can fudge the data however you want. Um, now, if, if, if that's the case, uh, you would still see this drift due to this differential fertility success pattern. Um, well, you're also going to see a shift more Republican in voting patterns. So we'll probably see about a shift more Republican in voting patterns over the next century. Um, but there's a lot of really interesting implications from differential fertility rates that like people are just sort of na 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 about. And like, it's insane because the data is so clear. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. So, and now I would like to go into 
what is uh, motivating you to be uh, do this fertility thing and be a natalist? Is it is it is is it anything having to do with religion, or is it only? No, 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 not at all. I just would really think it would be cool. Like we are at a blessed time. You know, the time we're at is. I think the equivalent of the maybe slightly after the height of the Athenian empire or after the height of the Islamic empire, after the height of the Roman empire, you know, you have this time where hedonism is becoming more popular. People are becoming more accepting of women. They're becoming more accepting of LGBT populations. This has happened before. And we have had collapses before yeah. like people who are like, ah, nah, we couldn't. It's, it's we're literally due for one. Yeah. Um, we're literally seeing every single one of the signs that happened in every single one of these other collapses already happening right now. Mm. It'd be really cool if it was possible for there to be, now they happened for different reasons in the past, right? Like this one is different, but like broadly I say, if we're looking at a world today and it turns out that prosperity, a wide access to education, like just these two things, I mean, you can add other things, gender equality, general pluralism, but let's just say if it turns out that prosperity and wide access to education, that these two things are totally incompatible with, with, with humans continuing the species, right? What that means, and right now they seem to be, except in Israel, if that turns out to be the case, um, then those two things will cease to exist. Any cultural group that's able to motivate those two things will cease to exist. Our one, yeah, we'll see a collapse of our civilizational structure, but two, the lives of future humans is going to be a lot more brutal than humans today. And Ooh. keep in mind that we are gifting the next dark age rulers all the technology we have today. Uh, that is man. nuclear weapons, AI, police states. If you look at where China is going right yeah. now, yeah. I think that we see what happens when, um, because I think that they're in a collapse process and they're further along in the collapse process than us. Um, and they, they haven't really innovated anything in, in a while, mm -hmm. partially due to where they are in this collapse process. And so I think what we're seeing is what happens when you gift a ruling class with all of these technologies. What they do is something that the Dark Age rulers never had access to, which is the ability to basically put cameras on all people at all times, ensure no rebellions, ensure if you're going to a protest, your credit card gets shut off and you can't get a job. I mean, that another renaissance could rise after this collapse is mm -hmm. pretty it's going to be a lot harder than has ever happened before. Mm -hmm. And so the question I have is, can we sort of put up a flag? I mean, demographic collapse is going to happen no matter what. Mm -hmm. Population groups are going to collapse no matter what. Can we, one, lower the impact of this at a global scale as it happens, you know, cause less suffering as it's happening? Mm -hmm. And two, hopefully um, bring in... A, a, a wide variety of different people who are experimenting with different cultures that can maybe be resistant to this that are that have you know uh, some things we might associate with modern society today like whether it's gender equality or wide access to education or you know any any number of other things right uh that would be cool um uh but uh yeah right now no one has really cracked that nut yet except for the jews and like i could just say okay well then we'll just have a future that's all jews but <laughs> That also seems like I want, I'm not Jewish, first of all. So, um, you, you know, wouldn't be cool welcome. my group also survived, but <laughs> if it's just Jews and just my kids, um, that could be nice, but I prefer to have as much pluralism as possible because I think it's yeah, our pluralism yeah. that makes us strong. I think yeah, of a, yeah, the yeah. variety of perspectives we have 
is what makes us strong. And we're seeing a mass cultural extinction of different perspectives and different mindsets because the thing that we're going to lose most in the future is not that human populations are declining. It's that human populations are declining unequally. So a huge number of human population groups are going to disappear. Probably the most noted population group that is definitely going to disappear, no matter what we do at this point, is what today we would call the progressive group. Now, I really don't mourn that group as much because I don't align with it that much. But this sort of urban monoculture, which is the most common culture in our society today, has just astoundingly low fertility rates. Wow, that's going to be that's so interesting because it's, it's like the shakers. Because uh, the shakers. Yeah, they're basically shakers. Actually, <laughs> it's more like the shakers than you think. So, the way the shakers survived as a cultural group is they opened orphanages. Um, and that's how they would get new members. Um, and when the government created state run orphanages that acted as a com- competition to the shaker orphanages, people stopped sending their kids to shaker orphanages and the shakers went extinct. Right now, the way this progressive cultural group repopulates itself is through the educational system and through the college system. Uh, this is just like clearly seen in the data. But as the other cultural groups, cultural groups adapt. So you can see this with the Amish. Uh, Intergenerationally, fewer and fewer Amish kids will leave an Amish family because cultures evolve. The iterations of that culture that weren't resistant to this stop, you know, they they stop getting good. So you see like the Jehovah's Witnesses, you interview Jehovah's Witnesses, you say, why don't you go to college? And they go, well, when we send our kids to college, like, why do you discourage them? They they stop being Jehovah's Witnesses, mm-hmm. and more and more cultures. So it used to be that, that you know they would just pray on the most extreme of these cultures. Uh, pray could be the wrong word. It's mm-hmm. it's how they breed. They are a parasitic cultural group. They used to get kids from mm-hmm. just the most extreme groups, but now they're getting kids from more and more moderate groups. And to fully integrate them into mm-hmm. this new cultural group, they need to turn them against their original group. But what that means is these more moderate groups are beginning to become more and more hostile and more and more negative to the education system. Um, now, I agree with this cultural perspective. I mean, I think that they are justified to say, I don't like that this group is taking our kids and teaching them to hate us. Um, so like that seems like a, a reasonable complaint, but I also understand the progressive perspective which is sort of well you know you're deplorable and your kids are right to hate you and this is the only way we can survive as a cultural group because we don't believe having kids is a just thing to do because anti-natalist sentiments are actually really common among progressive groups Mm. the the idea that humans are a negative on the world that we cause suffering that we generally make things bad that we're bad (laughs) for the environment why just not get rid of humans more broadly so the anti-natalists are sort of like the uh the negative utilitarians that we started this with they're sort of like the intellectual elite of this mindset but there's many sort of like less intelligent reasons to to support this mindset that sort of pervade i think the under underground currents of this sort of cultural group interesting okay so when I asked you, why, why are you doing this? You basically gave the Isaac Asimov Foundation uh, argument. Were you were you influenced at all by that? And let me, for my listeners, the the uh, Isaac Asimov wrote this book called The Foundation. And in the book, the main protagonist basically says he sees the intergenerational, interplanetary collapse. And he's like, okay, yeah. we, we got all the data. This is definitely happening. What we're going to do is set up society so that we can make this as short and sweet as possible or short and unsweet as possible and then get through it. Um, were, were you influenced by that? I wasn't influenced by that, but a lot of people have said that there's a lot of parallels between our movement and that. And the parallels are weirder than you probably think. So the actual way that we see this movement working is 
Um, what we don't want to do is to spread our, like, like to impose our culture on any other individual, right? Yeah. Um, so what we're trying to do is find people from diverse cultural groups that are trying to modify those groups to be more resistant to collapse. So like just yesterday, I was talking with a guy who runs the Transhumanist Mormon Association. Um, and, and they're modifying the Mormon faith to be like, no, actually it was about really living forever and really oh. becoming gods of other planets. And, and so it, none of the lies are contradicted by uh, sorry none of the um <laughs> the stories yeah, the stories are yeah. contradicted by the evidence you find out there today it's all we've always been a very accelerationist movement um and then another uh mormon group that we're really as that we have some affiliation with you know they they go in the completely opposite direction they're like well maybe we could be more traditionalist and get through this and this is like the deseret movement right and they're like let's create an independent state and go back to the way things used to be and then like we're connected with some like Haredi groups so we're sort of like an intercultural alliance of a bunch of different yeah. groups Groups that have all agreed to not pass judgment on each other. Like, I'm like, if your group, like, I believe in gender equality was in my group, but if your group doesn't agree in gender equality, I won't pass judgment on that. I won't try to convert your kids. Yeah. Um, the, 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 but we, we all agree that we need to work together and to create some sort of intercultural alliance so that we can have some sort of civilization in the future because the two things that we pretty much all agree on is that we like prosperity and we like a wide access to education mm -hmm. and if, if, if those two things disappear mm -hmm. the humanity is just like functionally worse mm. and so to try to essentially i love this cultural mod modification is so interesting i've studied a lot of the transhumanist stuff uh it's yeah. wild that there's a, 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 a mormon transhumanist because i've also studied the founding of Mormon church very in-depthly to understand uh, yeah. uh, how they did that, which is like fascinating. And I'm really no, but he borrowed a lot from yeah. like modern sci-fi and stuff. Like, well, but it was history. all before. Yeah. Okay. Oh, there was, oh, interesting. From Byrne? It's, 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 uh, uh, John Smith, uh -huh. um, you know, when he was founding it, uh, the, the, the Book of Mormon, like a lot of the ideas from it bear similarities to sci-fi books written around that period where he seems to have been, now this is assuming if you're not a Mormon and you're yeah. assuming that he got his ideas from somewhere else, he was actually getting his ideas from sci-fi and fantasy books of the period. Wow. So he, at the time, probably like they were arguing that if he was alive today, he would be borrowing ideas from the transhumanist movement. Oh, interesting. <laughs> uh, it's so wild. Uh, and there, there is an argument there. Um, uh, but well, okay. And so the cultural modification is super interesting. Uh, and the intercultural alliance, I think a good term for what you guys are doing is called maybe cultural economicalism. I don't actually uh, economical. There, you're, you're like you have these cultural beliefs, but you're not letting them interfere with the alliance to kind of create education and prosperity. Uh, and so your thesis is basically if you can have enough kids with this cultural modification uh, to preserve education and prosperity, then you will essentially uh, win against the 2000 year old battle against this prosperity. Yeah, yeah, well, and pluralism. And I think that's the most important thing um, because I think this sort of monoculture in our society right now, that's the predominant yeah. culture in all the major cities and everything like that, whatever you want to call it, um, it is really not as tolerant as genuine diversity or ideological diversity as people pretend. I mean, once you join, you know, if you are a far progressive Jew or a far progressive Muslim or a far progressive Catholic, mm -hmm. you generally have about the same views on gender, about the same views on sexuality, about the same views on morality, about the same views on the far future of our species. Whereas 
I talked to the other people in like the, the groups that make up sort of our alliance or I think even most conservatives, like a conservative Jew or a conservative Muslim or a conservative Catholic, they're going to have a wildly different views on all of those subjects. Um, and so what we're trying to do is to create some sort of pluralism that doesn't try to impose any sort of central values on everyone else in the pluralist alliance that allows them to maintain the, 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 the I think, diversity that makes us strong. Because um, I think there's always this sort of mockery of many of the groups that promote diversity the most in our society, they'll say we value diversity, but people really aren't that different in any meaningful way. Um, and, and we take a very different view, which is to say we promote diversity because the ways that people are different is what makes them strong. Yeah. If you create a form of diversity where people aren't really different, then you've lost all the value of diversity. Diversity isn't about like a color palette, okay? There's a meaningful reason we like diversity. It wasn't an aesthetic choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. diversity is an aesthetic. Um, okay, so that's really interesting. So you got pluralism, you've got uh, education, and you got prosperity. Uh, yeah. The only way that you can keep education and prosperity is to essentially establish a anti-fragile version of pluralism. Um, yeah. And okay, so that's really interesting. It reminds me of a lot of things I've been thinking about. A lot of people have this conception that we're entering a patchwork age. Uh, oh, that's what it reminds me. Okay, so you were saying that the last time this happened was in the Athenian age. Uh, there's been various times after that, but the one the most important for our cultural understanding is the Athenian age, where we have this time of prosperity. We have a time where uh, more what would now be called liberalism yeah. starts to appear. Um, but then that always foreshadows a collapse. Uh, and well, so I mean, the, the height of the Islamic empire was very similar as well. Like mm -hmm. gender equality became much more bigger than uh, acceptance of LGBT groups became a lot bigger than. Mm -hmm. um, so the, it's, the Athenian age, I think, is the most culturally evoked set within like the American educational system. But it's probably not the biggest or best example. Mm -hmm. But essentially, they're all going to have a collapse after them. Um, and so are we are at a unique time where we can essentially test things to see whether we can make that collapse different for our particular groups on a long-term time horizon uh, to say like, okay, well, you know, we're, we're going through this collapse, this, cl and it's so interesting, this part about the progressives are basically the shakers. Uh, Cause that, that definitely seems true. Cause there's no way that they can continue past a hundred years, past 200 years, if they all yeah. life is meaningless and, and like, why should well, we? Well, I really like some iteration of progressivism to find a way to motivate fertility mm -hmm. rates. Like I don't think progressivism is intrinsically negative. Yeah. I think parasitic groups are intrinsically negative because of the effects they have on surrounding cultural groups. So by that, what I mean is I think progressivism is 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 good because it, it largely values like openness to outside ideas mm -hmm. because it 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 it, it um, you know at least superficial diversity you know kindness. Um, the problem is is that if you have a cultural group that is parasitic in nature and specializes in peeling people off from all of the surrounding cultural groups who fit that sociological profile, then you make all of the surviving cultural groups more hostile to other groups. So I actually like don't disagree with progressivism as a mindset. I disagree with their reproductive strategy because of its long-term effects. I'd love it if some iteration of progressivism could become intergenerationally durable. Interesting. Uh -huh. um, but, but anyway, so to what you were saying earlier, no, we actually know how you get through this to an extent because mm. there has been a cultural group that mm. survived this before. Mm. So if we look at the downfall of the Roman Empire, yeah, yeah. We, what we saw was essentially a few cultural solutions, right? One group 
uh, which was the mystery cults that really exploded as the empire was collapsing. Uh, they said, let's go back to the old ways of doing things, these old pagan ways of doing things. Um, and they have since died out. Uh, today, we see a lot of people saying, well, if society right now isn't working, let's go back to the old ways of doing things. History says they're going to die out. Yeah. Then you had another group. It was this new, the fangled the cult that had started and they were had a lot of diversity was in it and like every city had a different version for a while and they had created all these really weird organizational structures and that today is what we would call the christians yeah. um and they were really intentional about the cultures they created you know they'd have these councils they'd all come together they'd be like okay we're different in the different areas but let's try to like come up with like what we're allowed to believe and what we're not allowed to believe. And then we'll find ways to like enforce this. And like, we'll think really intelligently about like, if we impose this cultural rule, it'll have this effect in the long run. That group both survived and thrived in the long run. Yeah. Um, it's just, I think this time we're coming into it with a lot more information than they had, mm -hmm. than they were building this the last time. But we've seen a system that works. Um, for for getting through this, it just didn't do a lot. Like I don't think that they were particularly concerned at that moment with shortening the length of the Dark Age. They were mostly concerned with uh, expanding the length of the Roman Empire because they saw themselves as you know. So that would be like us. Is our job to ensure that our current like Western economic system survives as long as possible, or is our job actually the value systems that yeah. we uh, are aligned with yeah okay interesting do you have any books like because i've been studying that as well the christians the early christians trying to understand what was going on on there do you have any good books that go into what was happening what you said probably before the nicene council where they all got together and made those real decisions about what we are and what we aren't yeah so I, i'd suggest people the great courses series um the teaching company they have a number of courses on sir at least they used to i don't know if they updated it but that's where i got most of my information on this was just lecture series from them mm. um and they they're fantastic for like college lectures on this sort of stuff um and the early christian church i just find really fascinating and is being a really strong model for what we're trying to create because they had much more ideological diversity than i think current i mean you've studied it right like you know they were all over the place yeah um and for a while they had an uneasy alliance they just created a system that then eventually got monopolized by a few groups which tends to happen uh and uh well, okay. So the last five to 10 minutes, this, what we're about to uh, go through, uh, seems, I mean, it doesn't, the, the outputs don't seem obvious, but it seems that we're headed for it. Uh, what yeah. is, I mean, obviously part of your plan is to have a lot of kids, uh, but like, what other things would you suggest to people who are listening to this? I've thought a lot about this question about like times of troubles. Uh, how do you how do you get through them? How do you kind of figure out wh what is the best way to go through these? Well, I say the whole geopolitical situation has changed and in a way in a very good way. So it mm. used to be, you know, when I was in Korea and I was thinking, well, for every hundred Koreans today, there's going to be at their current fertility rates, you know, four point six, you know, five, six point four, depending on what fertility numbers. So six point four, I think, was the current fertility numbers. Great grandchildren for every hundred Koreans. Whoa. You know, the society doesn't survive in 100 years. And that's the current fertility rates. They're dropping every year. And I was like, it's so wild. Like, where are they going to get people to fill all this empty land? Well, they could get them from Japan, but their fertility rates are dropping. They yeah. could get them from China, but their fertility rates are dropping. And then I was like, it's wild to think that Japan, less than a century ago, you know, millions of people died with them trying to push their culture onto other people uh, through fighting, but they can't motivate their people to have kids. Wow. Um, and 
it's it's wild that you know you look at what Russia's doing right now, right? Yeah. Like they're they're spreading their culture do, basically yeah. through a war where they have one of the lowest fertility rates in the world. Ukraine has one of the lowest fertility rates in the world. They they're doing nothing of value. The groups that are going to survive in the world are not the groups that can fight and kill better. Uh, they're the groups who can love better. And it's not just have kids better because if I have a bunch of kids now, what groups used to be able to do is they used to be able to have a bunch of kids and then tell those kids. If you don't stay in our cultural group, you're going to be shunned. Everyone's going to hate you and yeah. you're going to be punished forever. Um, and then kids would jump on the internet and they'd be like, well, that's not really a valid threat because there's actually other groups I can go to. So that doesn't work as well at keeping people in cultural groups intergenerationally anymore. So the cultural groups that are, are keeping kids these days, and it's one of the reasons why I think the Jewish cultural group has been so successful, is instead of saying, these are all the bad things that are going to happen to you if you leave our cultural group, um, they say... This is all of the great things about the first 18 years of a kid's life is your pitch that your way of living is better than whatever else they could choose, even if it's weird and causes them to be shamed, um, which it almost certainly will. All the groups that have a high fertility rate, they're weirdos, you know, whether it's the Amish or the the um, the the, uh, you know, uh, Hasidic Jews, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the, you know, anything else. Right. Um, so you you get the chance to experiment with what the future of human civilization looks like with the understanding that, you know, if I have eight kids and those kids have eight kids and we do that for just 11 generations. Yeah. That's more descendants than live on Earth today. Wow. You know, so anyone can be a big player in the future of, of humanity if you can create a stable cultural group. Oh, another thing I'd mentioned that I did say that no group says, well, if you leave us, bad things will happen. One group that does a good job with that message is actually the Amish. Yeah. Uh, so they've been able to really grow and really maintain it. But they don't have technology. Their cultural group is actually providing value to people. You know, it's it's one of the most interesting things I, I read recently was from a, um, a same-sex attracted Amish person hmm. who was like, yeah, I'm going back to the community. He's like, I know that the rest of my life I'll be living in a heterosexual relationship where I will not feel sexually attracted to my partner, but I'm being totally honest. All of the different cultural amenities they offer are so much better than what I get on the outside. I know oh, I'll always God. have friends. I'll always have a good income. I'll always have people looking out for me. I'll always, he's like, like, you don't get how good all of the things that they offer are. Um, and I think that that's something that we can forget or, or demonize when we're looking at these groups that are so different from us they, you know, they've, they've built these systems, but they've built them, um, you know, they, they, they're not necessarily just because they're different from us wrong or, or evil. Yeah. Well, this brings into something in mind that I've reflected on a lot, which is, you know, I come from the SF Bay Area. I've grown around progressives my whole life. And it was only up until Trump got elected that I started to realize, well, that's that's strange. <laughs> and then and then that led me to a whole other kind of unraveling, which coronavirus just totally destroyed. Um, yeah. So now I'm like now I'm like a wash or like. And, and so one of the things I noticed was that the progressives a lot of times have tried to set up these attentional communities and they always fail. Um, like, I don't think I've heard of anyone that's like actually succeeded, uh, particularly in the way that the Amish do, like even the 1960s and 1970s, all those things failed. All the kibbutz failed. Like, like they, they were never able to do what the Amish did. And, and I think it's the lack of a, let's a, talk about why you know, the kibbutz yeah. failed. So, so the, most of the kibbutz that actually failed, failed because they were so successful. They became right. so wealthy okay. that people left them. No, this yeah. is literally yeah. what happened. They would this sell the stakes in the company and, and leave them. They weren't able to 
culturally motivate the kids to stay in them um, when the alternative was wealth. If you're talking about the modern progressive communes, which I think are motivated by something very different than the kibbutzes, um, in the kibbutzes, they all came together because they all wanted to sacrifice for some sort of common outcome. Mm. Um, whereas I think within the what I've seen within these these modern progressive households is they often really are thinking more about how other people will sacrifice for them rather than how they're going to sacrifice for other people. Yeah. Um, and what you yeah, need in these yeah, communities yeah. is something where there is a hierarchy, like an internal hierarchy, where the people at the top of that hierarchy are the people who sacrifice the most for other members of the community. But uh, the, the in the progressive hierarchy, the people at the top are the people who are most emotionally fragile or victimized. Yeah. Essentially, the people who are are most likely, we did a deep analysis of this, and, and yeah. what we came to is, is that your emotional susceptibility to being hurt is what determines how much people should should pay attention to preventing you from being hurt, which essentially determines the amount of mind share you have, which essentially determines your status within the hierarchy. Now, like logically, I can understand like why that works as a value set, but it obviously doesn't work within a government structure or a community as a value set, because if you put the most emotionally fragile people in charge, of course you're going to have everybody turning at each other's necks in 10 seconds yeah that's what's been so weird about my life i guess it's just the inversion of all the what seems like this natural laws of the universe the inversion of it just because you know patriarchy is so bad so we'll just do the opposite of patriarchy and then it just kind of unravels and like everything becomes really strange um, uh, well, I love talking to you, but I have another interview yep. in one minute right now. Um, <laughs> Thank you so I'd much. I'd love people to check out Basecamp if, yeah. if they're up to, and we can finish this recording some other time if you want to book something else. And also we'll do the other recording. Sure. Uh, go check out Basecamp. Thank you so much, Malcolm. Uh, this was fun. I, I hope, I hope your listeners enjoyed. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes and as always subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast.